I'll be reading from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3 this morning. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me start with this question. How much of your life do you spend protecting yourself? Yeah, I said a question again. How much of your life do you spend protecting yourself, securing security, if you will? Maybe spending money to secure the look on the outside that you want everyone convinced is true of the inside as well? Or how much time do you spend assessing your past conversations based on how well you were able to secure influence or power or direction of the conversation and the person or the situation? Or how much time do you spend arranging life to hide your brokenness, to hide your sinfulness, the unrighteousness in your life, or Maybe, just, maybe it's not even sinful things, but it's a combination of that and a lack of wisdom or such. But you spend time arranging life to secure this togetherliness uh, or togetherness of your life. Or how often do you spend words in order to make, again, this outside of the bowl look clean or polished? And I guess in our day and age, I should say, how often do you spend your Facebook posts doing so? Or your text messages speaking so? This morning I want to talk about the diet of your life. The, the diet of your life. Not a fad diet. Uh, not a, I'm going to go on a diet. But, but the diet. What does the actual intake of your life look like? And ultimately, your, your, your goal, like what you accomplish and your diet, there's kind of this interplay that happens. Both what you're after will affect your diet, but then you also what you are dieting on also affects what you're after. And there's this kind of this interplay between the two. But if we want to get at what does our diet look like, I think we can begin with asking the question of, how much of your life, what do you spend your life doing? Because that's going to necessitate the kind of diet that you require. If you think about someone who's weightlifting or someone who's running, these guys will eat like 10,000 calories in a day. I mean, I don't know if you know it, but that's insane. Uh, 10,000 calories, I, I, don't, ten, ten, I don't know if I could eat that much, like physically, 10,000 calories. But they do that to, to maintain the goal and to accomplish what they're after. You see, whatever we're craving, like when we think about this spending our time, our money, and, and, and trying to frame this around the idea of protecting ourselves, whatever it is that we want, securing that, what happens is we end up feeding these cravings. It, it, it's what, kind of what forms and helps uh, direct the diet uh, that we intake. And then we expel this diet with endless energy for these cravings. And so I, w I wonder this question for all of us. 
as I've thought about this myself this past week, how frail our number, our weight, if you will, might reveal or might be if we were to step on a spiritual scale. What is the diet of your life? But what if your diet was something richer? Something so much more nutrient-filled. Something that would last longer. Something that was sufficient for a worthy cause. A diet that even though you might try to spend it all for the task given, somehow your tank still overflowed. Somehow there's still some left to give. Somehow there is still energy there. What if you were hungry for more than what you have settled for for most of your life? For many of your days? What if there was something more? I'm going to begin with this thought, this imperative from Peter. He says this, and I'll help you see how I got there in just a second. But he says, rid yourself of your radical sense of self-protection. Rid yourself of your radical sense of self-protection. Self, you can feel that with a few things. Self-security, self-orientation. Uh, uh, I'll kind of communicate the same thing, but this, this self-oriented living of securing life for you, he says to get rid of it. He gives us really two imperatives, and those will be the two main points for this morning, but that's not all he says, but let's work through this first imperative. All these words given, when he says put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all of these words give us a catalog of self-protecting and others-hurting actions. It's a catalog of self-protection and actions that hurt other people. Again, go back, go back. What, what is he, what, he's, he's doing a little bit of a juxtaposition here. He goes, he's telling us to purify your soul, having brotherly love, so on and so forth, pursuing holiness, like giving of yourself to other people, now put away these things. So if you're going to do that, it's going to look like putting away these things. A catalog of self-protection and actions that hurt other people. The first one is malice. We, we need to work through each one of these we will do rather briefly, but each one of these words and define these words and kind of give some examples for these words um, so that we understand it and can apply it well. The first one is malice. He says to put this away. This includes intent, but also any actions that are harmful to other people. Any actions that are harmful to other people. It also includes intent. Now listen, this is what I want you to think with me here. You never simply malign for the sake of maligning somebody. Like it's never an action apart from its relationship to you. It's never, uh, I'm just going about my day and uh, I want to malign this person. I malign them and then I just move on. It's always this 
sense of how does this maligning to this person, this maligning of this person going to affect me? There's always this me portion that you and I just can't seem to get away from. There's always this what is the benefit for me in my maligning of this other person? So we can't think of maligning as this action that you and I simply do. It's an action that comes from the me. It comes from the flesh. It comes from some part of me. There's a measure of what's in this maligning for me. Example, we malign because we stand to gain something, or it could be for our good. Whether I feel better because maybe I'm making myself look better to a third person involved, or I just simply feel more secure in who I am. But there's this sense of self-oriented, self-protecting that is present when we think about the idea of malice. And I would say that's true of all of these words as well. But something I want to drive home when we think about Paul's use of the word malice here is that it doesn't matter your intent. If you harmed someone, then you committed malice. This is really crucial when we think about things like gossip, slander as he's going to get to later. If you're harming that other person, you have committed malice. Whether you intended to, that, to do that or not. Now, now I, I, do, I, I don't want to give a ton of caveats here. We, we need to move on. But there can be debate as to whether someone was truly harmed. Or was it their pride, ego, or flesh that was harmed. Right? For example, as the word is preached here, we oftentimes lay, because of the nature of the word, it lays a strategic assault upon our pride. Now, it might feel like you're being maligned, right, when your pride is assaulted. So in that sense, yes, you're being maligned, but is it a sinful maligning? No. It's your flesh that's responding. But what we're talking about here is this maligning that genuinely hurts the image bearer of God. The goodness of that person, the goodness of God in that person. You're maligning that. And it matters not to your intent. So it means practically if you maligned someone but your intent was not to do that, then you should still repent for it. I am sorry for maligning you. That was not my intent, but nevertheless it happened and I am sorry. Next word, deceit. Deceit. Deceitfulness that harms others through trickery or falsehood. Deceitfulness that harms others through trickery or falsehood. Now again, why would you deceive? It's not simply to be a liar, but we deceive as life relates to us. We deceive in a self-oriented way, a self-motivated way. Now, again, this deceit is not just telling a lie. It could be leaving out pertinent information in order to lead someone down a deceitful path. So it could be like, if you think of a sins of commission versus sins of omission, it could be you're committing, like you are speaking the lie, or it is omitting something that you should be speaking 
therefore deceiving, the, the net result is still the same. That person has been deceived by your words or lack of words. Some examples of deceit that you may not think of. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. I see, I see this with my kids all the time, right? I, but we never get to do that, right? Right? Never, really. Never. Never. Okay. Right? He's trying to deceive me through trickery or falsehood. He's being hyperbolic. Or telling, another example, telling the story with just an added twist to make yourself look good or someone else look bad. It's deceitfulness. Another example, subtle man, more, more subtle manipulation. For example, this, this isn't really the reason I want to do this thing, but I know it's the reason, I'm sorry, this is, isn't really the reason I want you to do this task, but I know that it's the reason that will get you to do it. Right? It's a subtle manipulation, a deceitfulness. Or another example, it might hit a little closer to home. I, I don't feel good enough to go to house gathering tonight. When it's really just because I don't want to. Or I have something else more convenient for me to do. I picked house gathering, you could pick your own religious activity. Deceitfulness. Moving on to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The masking of inward evil by an outward show of righteousness. The masking of an inward evil by an outward show of righteousness. Hypocrisy. Hiding the unrighteousness by showing false righteousness. A lot of times we hide our own specific sin by pointing out that sin in other people. Especially if we can find someone who does the sin more visibly. Oh, well that person does this, or that person does this. You know, in psychological terms we call it like projecting. You're projecting your sin onto somebody else. It's not just that, but hypocrisy is any form where we're hiding our inward evil by a display of outward righteousness. Listen, I know for a fact, speak pastorally here, that there are some of us in this room living right now in great hypocrisy without the accountability of someone other than even our spouse. I'm going to explain in a second. We do this so that we can keep the evil in us masked. Now you say, okay, Matt, wait, why do you, what, you've said this before. What, what do you say, other, someone living it without accountability, and it should be someone other than your spouse. I think your spouse is a great person, but here, here's, I mean, I assume they're a great person. Here's the, here's the issue. When it comes to accountability and your spouse, you know how to defend yourself against your spouse. You know how to hide things from your spouse. You know how to, you, you know how to, to justify not doing what your spouse has said. 
So just a, a practical benefit and necessity for us to have someone that we are exposing our life to, that we are not hiding ourselves from other than our spouses. I, I think our spouses should definitely be a part of our sanctification process. I'm not debating that. But what I'm saying as far as the application of this goes in our church, an example of us living in hypocritical ways one of the ways that we do that is by not giving ourselves to accountability so that the inward evil can be displayed for what it is and told for what it is and, and accounted for for what it is and then dealt with for what it is. And then my pastoral particular point that I'm trying to make is that there are some of you, I know for a fact, that are living without this accountability and so living in a way that enables you to hide the inward evil all while maintaining an outward show of righteousness. And you're in a dangerous spot. Envy. Envy. Envy is this, the opposite of thankfulness for good which comes to others. The opposite of thankfulness for the good that comes to others. You're upset because that other person is getting attention that you deserve. Or you're bothered that that brother or sister seems to enjoy God more than you. Or, or you're bothered because that person seems to be more blessed by God's word or by this or, or whatever. But it's the opposite of thankfulness for the good which comes to others. You envy it. You want it. Again, again it's, not, it's not just... They don't deserve it. It's I deserve it more. Uh, that, that's you understand what I'm saying. Like it's not just you're upset that they're getting something that they shouldn't be getting that they shouldn't be getting. It's it's always in relation to you. How do, how do I secure this? I want that. Why don't I have that? I want it. I deserve it. I should have it. Envy. And not thankful for them because you're, it's based on the premise that I should have it. This false assumption or false uh, assessment of self. I should have it. They should not. Or if they're getting it, I definitely should be getting it. Next, slander. Let me just be very, very clear here. Any speech which harms, whether it's intended to or not, another person's status, reputation, etc. Any speech, whether intended to or not, that harms another person's status, reputation, etc., Now, I, I, I'm hoping, I don't know if I'll have time this week, but the next couple of weeks, I, I, want to, I wanted to do it here in this context, but I just don't have time to explain when, it, like, where do you draw that line? So say I'm sitting, like, with one of my elders, and I'm trying to figure out counsel on how to help this person over here, and, it, and it's going to require me to, uh, if, if I want some of this, I'm going to have to kind of talk about some bad things in that person's life. When is that okay? When is that not okay? And when is it considered slander? When is it not considered slander, right? These, these are 
I think important things for because if we have like a very rigid, arguably even legalistic understanding of these, then we miss out on some of the goodness of being able to talk in right ways with the right people about the right things for the good of other people. And, and I think there's room for that in God's kingdom. But I think the, the, the starting point for us needs to be this point where Peter starts us at. And that, that's why I don't have time to, to work through this as Peter doesn't ultimately go here either. But is it slander, any speech which harms? We need to start there and rid ourselves of these things. Because ultimately, if we understand, this is where, if I was sitting with you to help explain when is it okay, the question is going to always come back, are you doing this with some measure of motivation, of self-protection, self-oriented drive in your heart? If you stand to gain anything from this, then we're probably dancing in slander, gossip, or such. Okay. It kind of wraps up this catalog of, of these, these words. All these sins, again, are brought about by a radical sense of self-protection, like a, pers- a sense of pursuing self-security. Why? Why? Why is that the case? When we think about this idea of loving one another, of being in relationship with each other, of interacting with each other, because of sin, relationships in many ways are dangerous. We want to protect ourselves in situations. I want you to think about Adam and Eve for a second. Adam and Eve, when they chose a different path other than God's path, it brought danger into their relationship. Where do you see that at? Listen, this is part of the reason why Adam and Eve covered themselves. Uh, they, they went and hid and, and hid from God. That was a reality too. But they also covered themselves. They, they covered their body parts. They covered themselves. Why? Because now guilt and shame and the danger of an assault from the other person because of guilt and shame, this entered into their relationship. So now relationships became dangerous. Their relating to each other became dangerous. And I don't think it's just a perceived, like a self, like a perceived danger. It literally became dangerous. Because now not only was their sin and guilt upon them and it was exposed and they wanted to hide it, but they also, again, risked being attacked or hurt by the other person because of this now newly acquired sin and guilt. But Peter says to us, these, this sense of radical self-protection, he says, to put it away, to stop it. Don't do it anymore. No exception. But here's the problem. As someone I read this week said this, the put-awayers are the problem. The problem is not the malice. If the problem is not the slander. I mean, yeah, yeah, those are problems, but they're the fruit of a bigger problem. The bigger problem is the put-awayers. Again, the problem is not simply the action. And if we stop with the Nike logo, right, just do it, we will fail. Because the put-awayers are still there. The put-awayers are still the problem. You see, whatever we touch gets touched by our brokenness. 
So even in our efforts to do better, to put away, are still touched by the put awayers. See, these issues, these issues of malice and self-protection, these issues of giving ourselves to the love of other people are not personality issues. I don't care what, what test you've taken. It's not an age issue. It's not a season of life issue. These are heart issues. And the heart issue is that we are oriented, our proclivity is towards self-protection to the degradation of somebody else, to the hurtfulness of somebody else. You see, the creator of the malice, the creator, the doer of the deceit, the, the doer of the hypocrisy, the, the, again, the creator of these things is still there. At best, at best, we become legalists who polish the outside, but we still harbor the same sins within. We find other ways that are just less obviously sinful to pursue self-security even at the expense of other people. I was reminded this week of a quote from John Bunyan. It says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, bids us fly, and gives us wings. That's where, in this passage, we have to say, thank goodness for the so. Or depending on your translation, it might be a therefore. Peter doesn't begin with, just put these things away. You need to make sure this happens. Do it. He begins with a so, a, a therefore. What happens? What is he hearkening? What is he directing us back to? The, the so, if you will, at the beginning, calls us back Ultimately, to, to use a term by uh, John Piper, he calls us back to future grace. I want to walk us back so that we can see the future grace here very quickly. The so, when he says so, put away, or therefore, put away, what is he directing us back to? Go back to verse 23. He says, since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So since this has happened, put away these things. Since this has happened, put away these things. But verse 23 doesn't even start there. This is pointing us back to something even earlier in 1 Peter. Look back in verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again. Now you need to keep this phrase, born again, in your mind because it's very pertinent for uh, these first few verses of chapter 2, as we'll see in a few minutes, even beyond what we're talking about right now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Read, it is secure. Who by God's power are being guarded, read, secure. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The so points us back to this reality. It's like Peter is saying to us this. Look 
at the cross. Look at your new birth. Look at what secures for today and for tomorrow. The picture Peter is painting for us is you can put these things away because of this unbelievable picture of security. This unbelievable reality of something that is protected and undefiled. This inheritance that is being kept for you. But not only is it being kept for you, but you're being guarded and kept for it. This inheritance. What is this inheritance? That we get God and we get Him forever and in eternally secure relationship with God forever. You get this. God's keeping it. God is protecting it. He's protecting you for it. It is all secure. And it's a living hope that He has called you to. What He's saying, Peter is saying, our relationship with God is securely held in His hands. You see that the most important relationship ever is held securely and protected by God Himself. Even in the midst of our sinfulness, His grace is sufficient to keep us secure for tomorrow. We don't need to do these harmful things to others to protect ourselves and make ourselves feel better. We are as secure as we will ever be in the hands of God. But Peter's saying, you don't have to do these things. Put them away. Why? You don't have to protect yourself. Why? Because God protects you. Because God has secured you in Him. Don't you see the wings? How do we know? So here's the question. How do we know and experience this security in such a way that we live securely in God and put away these things. We must feast on the Word. That's where Peter's taking us. We must feast on the Word. More on that in a bit, but hang on to that thought. Has a good diet of God's word made a difference in your relationships? That's Peter's point here. I'm not just applying it to a random thing in the church, even though I think there's freedom to do that. But this this is the context, is us being holy, particularly as it relates to relationships in the body of Christ. Has a good diet of God's word made a difference in your relationships? Listen, we are richly enabled people through Christ for this task. Richly enabled. Abundantly enabled. We don't have to self-protect. We can give ourselves to other people. We can serve their good even to the perceived neglect of our good. You hear me? We can serve their good even to the perceived neglect of our good. Now, I phrased it that way uh, on purpose. Because I, I think we've given ourselves to a lie of this neglect of our good. To give someone else and neglect ourselves. Matthew 16, 24, verse 25, if you had a special Bible, it would be in red. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now think about this with you for a second. There are multiple ways that we take up the cross and follow Jesus. Multiple forms that that takes. One of the forms that that takes is laying down our lives for our brother and sister Christians. One of the forms of taking up your cross and following after Jesus is laying it down for a brother or sister Christian. Now what's Jesus say? By giving your words and actions for the good of another. What is the promise? What is the promise? It's the future grace that you will find your life when you lose it for the sake of Christ. See, that's the thing. I'm going to give myself, but I'm going to neglect myself. It's just a lie. Jesus says when you give it for my sake, you'll actually find it. But we've so twisted this stuff around. I, I, I know even many of you are not, well, you're, you're just going, well, wait, wait, well, you know, but I got, I got to make sure I have time for myself, and I got to make sure I do these things, and I got to make sure, like, I care for, you know, it, it, you're, you're, you're making, right now, even in your own mind, you're making all these exceptions. Why? Because our, our hearts are so twisted towards self. Jesus says if you lose it, only there will you find it. You will find your life. You will find the life you were meant to live as you give it to the good of another. What a promise. The promise is that as you go, as you do it, you will find life. <sighs> Listen, we can clean house on this radical or of this radical self-security pursuit because of the security we have in our relationship with God. One preacher said this, instead of malice, we can lift others up. Instead of deceit, we can speak truth for the good of others. Instead of hypocrisy, we can live vulnerable and accountable lives. Instead of slander, we can bring encouragement and honesty about our brokenness first and foremost. Foremost. He goes on, the good news of the gospel is that we have the wings to do this stuff. We have been given the ability to see healing in our marriages. We've been given ability to see our churches multiply and not split. We've been given ability to hear the truth concerning our sin. Did you hear that? We have been given the ability to rest in the protection of Jesus so that we can live radically for the good of others. So let me ask you this. This begs the question. Do you know the security of the gospel? Do you know the safetiness of the gospel? Or do you know the refuge that is the gospel? Do you know the protection of the gospel? Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know because God you have not experienced new birth and never really trusted Christ as God's Redeemer. The one who lived perfectly, lived a holy life, one that you and I could not. And was the one who died for your sin to pay the price for it. 
And so you don't know what security with God feels like or looks like. I want to encourage you to, today to ask God to give you a heart to see and to believe. And as we'll see in a minute, to taste His goodness. To believe that Jesus lived this life and He died for your sin. Now maybe on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you have trusted Christ as God's Redeemer, but you have forgotten or you really don't know what it means to rest under the wings of His protection. To use language from our Ruth series. To rest under the wings of His protection. Peter tells us next, number two, long for a redemptive relationship with God. Long for a redemptive relationship with God. Let's read two and uh, 1, 2, and 3 again. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And then really where we're beginning at now is verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. All right, let's stop there. So we're going to focus for the next little bit. Everyone longs for a relationship with something higher than themselves. I mean, this is something mankind was created to do. They long for something beyond themselves. The issue is whether or not they know that this longing is for the God of the Bible or not, right? Whether they recognize that. Then, here's, a, I want to drill down that, that thought just a little bit further. Even if they know that it's the God of the Bible that they should be longing for, this is what separates Christian church goers from truly redeemed followers of Jesus. And that's this. Those who long for a redemptive relationship with God versus those who just want some measure of benefits from God. Those who long for this redemptive relationship with God versus those who just want some measure of religiosity, benefits, such from God. In our house gathering this past week, the, we're, we're talking about potentially the salvation or not of, a, of another person in, in this person's family. And, and the question was, well, if we go to First Peter, right, we're studying First Peter right now, what, do they long for pure spiritual milk? I, and I th if I think, if I was reading the situation correctly, the, the answer was a sad no. I don't see that. They long for pure spiritual milk. See, those who know they can't live without God's life-changing hope versus those who just want God when it's convenient. Listen, some of us are still in the latter category, even though we've been going to church all of our lives. But the imperative of, this, this is so interesting. Because the imperative or the, the command of Peter here is on our desires. It's on our longings. It's on our affections. And he's commanding our affections. He's saying that we must long for the pure spiritual milk. He's commanding desires. Now in a second you're going to understand why that's a, a struggle. 
Now, uh, first of all, we should clear up. He's not using milk in a sh- like in a shallow versus meat kind of depth sense. Okay, that's not that's not what Peter's talking about. He's not not talking about well, you should long for meat instead of settling for the milk that's sh- that's more shallow and soft and spoon fed. That's, that's, that's not his point. What he's, he's talking about is just pure spiritual milk. So don't relate this to meat and deeper growth or any of that kind of thing. But he's using it to illustrate the intense desire for and the known necessity of the Word of God. This intense longing for it. And he's commanding us to have that. Have this intense longing for the Word of God. Now I want you to think about an infant with me for just a few moments. An infant has this innate desire to drink from mom. They whine when they are hungry. They feed until they are full. And then usually, you know, an hour later, they start whining again until they're ready to feed again or until they're able to feed again. And then you kind of start this whole cycle over and over and over and over and over again. They even I don't want to push the metaphor here too far. I think I'm still within the constraints of, of Peter's metaphor. They even feed just to comfort themselves. They feed to aid in their pain and to soothe their troubles, to work through the griefs that they're experiencing, to find trust and security, to find that safe place. Infants feel the security of mom's arms around them and the suckling and such that they experience. It's a restful place, a safe place. It's a place that gives them hope for tomorrow as they fill their stomachs right now. Peter is saying this. You must long for the words of of God. The words breathed from his mouth, just like a baby longs for its mom's milk. Now, this is a bit hard for us, particularly in our culture. We are used to getting almost anything we want immediately, right? Two-day shipping. Sometimes it's tempting to pay the extra to get the one-day shipping, and and now we're talking about drones delivering them to our house doorsteps, you know, within hours. Instant gratification just marks our culture. We all have deep longings, though. It's just oftentimes we long too much for the wrong things, or we suppress our longings for God with other self-indulging actions. And God created us to long for God. To long for Him. You see, God longs to fulfill and satisfy us. Now, don't confuse this with a culture of human-centered theology. It's not where I'm going. It's not where Peter goes. We're not at the center. God is at the center. But even God at the center longs to fulfill, to be the milk that satisfies. Right? That's... Part of what he's saying, God's plan, God's desire is to be the pure spiritual milk. Indeed, he is the pure spiritual milk that does satisfy. 
So you see, the calling to crave for this milk is God calling us to none other than Himself. Calling us to Himself. The Word of God is important, but only important because of the God whose words it is. It's His words. This call is to a dependent relationship on God like an infant is dependent and longing for its mother. I mean, think about that. An infant would die if it was not taken care of, if it was not given the milk and the nutrients that it needs. And Peter is saying you must view life the same way, that you will die. Indeed, you will die an eternal death apart from a dependent, redemptive relationship with God. Listen, what you do with God's word will determine the depth of your abiding joy and relationship with God. What you do with the word will determine, not just have a minimal effect on, will have an absolute effect on your abiding joy and relationship with God. Now here's the struggle. How is it that we could ever long truly and fully for God? Again, he's commanding an affection. He's commanding a longing. He's saying, have this longing. Now I have a question. How many of you can command your longings? I want this longing for that. Does it work? Does it even work that way? They don't think it works that way. But yet Peter commands it. Our hearts are so desperately wicked. We chase after all the wrong things. Again, it's like a diet. Think with me here for a second. Think with me for a second. Think about this milk, what we long for. We've grown so used to, think about a typical American diet. We've grown so used to things like sugar, simple, shallow food, such that the depth of our palate has been stripped of richness and settled for much of the wasteland of processed foods. High in sodium, high in sugar. Now listen, I'm not trying to make you feel bad for eating a box lunch, okay? It's, it's not my point. We've grown, our, our, our palates are just satisfied there. It just stops there. And then on top of that, most of us eat for the moment. We eat for the moment. What tastes good and feels good now? I'm hungry. What will satisfy me right now? But when you begin to eat to live well for the next four hours, you're tasting something so much richer. Instead of just a few moments of goodness, I get to continue feasting on this goodness as I make it halfway through the day still enjoying the goodness of what I ate. See, the issue with our longings is not that they're too strong for these other things. It's that our desires are actually too weak. I, I resist the temptation to quote uh, C.S. Lewis at this point. If you, you, you want to know that quote, just ask me or someone else later. He's got a great quote on this one, but, and I probably should have just quoted it by the time I've spent time talking about it. But let's just say it this. Some of us are much happier with mud pies in the slum than we are at the prospect of a holiday at the beach. We're so satisfied. Our, our, our desires are too weak. Our longings are too weak. Our longings are satisfied with way too little. Listen, the porn addict's addiction to porn isn't too strong. It's too weak. 
he or she is okay with feeling good for a moment and then feeling like crap later. The power addict is okay with feeling powerful in this moment only to deal with the fallout of relationships later. The comfort addict is okay with feeling comfortable now even if it means suffering the consequences of having to work hard later. But listen, even here, how in the world do we change our longings? And the reality is we can't. You and I, we can't change our longings. It's like Jesus says to Nicodemus. He said, how shall I be saved? And Jesus says, go be born again. What's he saying? He said, Nicodemus, go do something you cannot do yourself. Peter's doing the same thing, long for spiritual milk. And he knows good and well that you and I cannot do that ourselves. But here's the good news of the gospel. Let's read those verses again. So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The imperative is long for the pure spiritual, long for the goodness of God. The indicative is, the assumption of Peter, for those who are followers of Jesus, is that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's what Peter's saying. Just like that, just like that newborn infant knows that its mother's milk tastes good, you who have been given new life. Right, that's why that verse at the beginning of chapter 1, you have been born again, given new life. And, and then he kind of refreshes that in verse 23. And then now we'll talk about this newborn infant idea. You who have been given new life. Here's what he's saying. You have tasted the Lord and you know that He is good. You know that there is life in His words. You know that He is everything you need. You know that you can't live without Him. And if this isn't true of you, then it's because you've not experienced new birth. But if you have experienced new birth, then He's saying you have tasted and you know that He is good. So we were created to long for goodness, but only new hearts have tasted and seen that the Lord is indeed good. Peter's, the implication of what Peter is saying is this, if it's good, you will return time after time after time after time. You will continue to go back to feed. And the more we are convinced that the grace of his relationship will be there tomorrow, the more willing and anxious we will be to give of that security to other people. You see this. Listen, as we depend on his words and drink of his words, we grow in our security of relationship with him. You and I, listen, we can't create this deep longing but 
Peter, like we can't create this longing for God. But Peter says, because of new birth, you've tasted it. The longing is there. What we can do is feed the appetite. And that's his point. To long, to, to feast on his word. We can continue to develop and deepen its palate. Of course, all that by the Spirit, the power of the Spirit at work in it, because he has to illuminate the words to us and, and so on and so forth. But we can feed this appetite. And then as I said, the more we're convinced then, as we spend time in the word, the more we're convinced that the grace of his relationship will be there tomorrow, the more willing and ready we'll be to give of that security to other people. The more we'll be willing to risk for the good of the body of Christ around us. One more problem. Don't we tend to harden ourselves? Uh, isn't that kind of our proclivity? To harden ourselves even towards other people? Let me encourage you. If you have a hard time loving others like you're supposed to, which is all of us in this room, if you struggle with self-protection, you struggle with a loose tongue, so on and so forth, there's a correlation between that struggle and your longing for the nutrients of God's Word. Okay, That's where we have to be careful that we don't, again, well, it's my personality. Or it's, you know, there's a correlation between your caring and loving of other people and your longing for the nutrients of God and His Word. If you struggle to love others, if you struggle with self-protection, it's because your longings are too weak. You have settled for something way less than God. Namely, in many ways, His grace through His Word. Let me read to you a passage in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Listen to these words. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Think about that for a second. They have forsaken me. Who? A fountain of living water. A place of pure, nutrient-filled milk. And what have they traded it for? Things they have fashioned with their own hands that have nothing but holes in them where they put water in and all the nutrients come out. What does that lead to? Living waters is being juxtaposed with what? Death-filled waters. Death waters. I mean, that, that, think about it. That seems crazy, right? Does that seem crazy to you? Yes, no? Yes. I hope so. That's insanity. Like, why would we do that? Why would, you, why would you actually trade living waters for something that will make us sick and even lead to death? Why would we do that? It seems insane. We settle for way too less, way too little. Our appetites are too weak. Because we don't believe that God is sufficient. I think we should repent to God, asking Him to increase our longings for the right things, namely Him. 
My life says that these other things are more glorious than you, God. Forgive me. My life says that these things lead to better life than you do. Forgive me. Give me a desire for you and your pure word. Let me not be satisfied with anything else. Let my longings for these other things be exposed for the emptiness of which they lead to. Long for the security that is yours through God's grace. Listen, Peter gives us the command to long for God's word and he gives us the wings to get there. Again, Peter's assumption is this. Those who are followers of Jesus, you have been given new birth. You have this imperishable seed planted deep within your soul. And those whom God has given new birth to have tasted the Lord is good. That's not a, it's not a, if you have new birth, you've potentially tasted the Lord is good. He's saying, no, if you've had new birth, if God has regenerated your heart, then you have tasted that the Lord is good. These things go together. That's Peter's assumption. So he's saying this, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you've experienced new birth. And if you've experienced new birth, then listen, even though you might have forgotten what it tastes like, you have tasted and you know that the Lord is good. Peter is saying all it takes is one taste. And that taste is imperishable. It can never fully be quenched. Again, we're commanded, he's saying, to put away this radical selfishness. How? By longing for God through His Word. And how will we ever long f- for God through His Word? How will we ever do these commands? How can we ever live such holy lives? Where are the wings to get me there? Again, to belabor the same point, Peter says, through God's new birth, you have tasted the Lord, and it's sweeter than anything you have ever tasted. It's more precious than money could ever buy. It's grace. It's more secure than what you could ever grasp and secure with your own hands. He's not talking about some mental assent to a tasting. He's saying you have experienced the goodness of God. This is heart knowledge. You have experienced the goodness of God. And now that you have experienced it, everything else will begin to taste spoiled. So let me ask this question. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? If I could just speak real, sh- real straight at you. Some of you have mistaken the bitter taste of legalism and religiosity for tasting the goodness of the Lord. And you settle right in because you, you know how to do this church thing. You know how to do this, you know, live in and Christian relationship thing. But all that you've tasted is the bitterness of legalism and religiosity. Or this, I gotta do this thing and I gotta do this rule. And then when something comes along, listen, when something comes along that tastes better than the bitter diet you've been chewing on, no wonder you make unrighteous and foolish decisions. Because it's not hard to find something that tastes better than bitter legalism and religiosity. 
I pray that God would give you a new heart so that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. And if I can encourage you to do anything today, it would be this, to ask Him to do that in you. Give me a new heart so that I can taste and see that you are good. Or maybe you have tasted, and you know the Lord tastes good. It tastes sweet. But you find yourself settling for spoiled delights. The command doesn't change. Long for the pure milk of the word. The motivation is this. Don't you remember the sweetness? Don't you remember how good it tastes? Are you an amnesiac when it comes to the goodness of our Lord? Stop forgetting. Stop letting it fizzle out. Stop letting His goodness become a second thought. And how do we do that? Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Listen, our proclivity is to box as one beating the air, to run aimlessly. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good... Here's what he's, here's, if we put these imperatives from Jesus and Paul together with what we're learning here with Peter, then we should discipline yourself by staying in the Word, studying it intently, reflecting on it, applying it, listening to sermons over and over again. Do renovate us. Take notes in house gathering. Give yourself to DNA. Give yourself to these things that will remind you, not just make you more knowledgeable in the word, although that's a part of it, but things that will remind you that the Lord tastes good and he tastes better than anything else you've ever tasted. All these things that I just mentioned are meant to help you fight against your amnesia when it comes to tastes, the tasting of the Lord that he is good. Don't you remember? You have tasted the Lord, and He is good. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for forgetting such a glorious taste. Forgive us for settling for things apart from You saying to the world that these things are more glorious than you. Father, for there, if there is an example of blasphemy, that, that, that is it. For us to live saying that our God, our Creator, our Sustainer, our Healer, our Protector, that He's not good enough. And we must have these things over here. 
Father, forgive us for our longings. Go after the wrong things. Where longings are too weak, we settle for way too less. Father, our, our, our longings are not just a reality of themselves. They, they are connected to still the brokenness of our hearts, of our flesh. But Father, we know that you, have, you for, for those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that you, it's only because you have given us new life, only because you have given us new birth, only because you have given us the tongue to taste it. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know that the Lord tastes good, that you would give them the heart and the palate to taste and see that the Lord is good. And for those, for the rest of us, Father, please remind us Remind us that there is nothing sweeter than your son, Jesus. Remind us of how good it tasted. Last week when we read the Bible and we sat down and communed with you, remind us of how good that tasted. In the middle of the struggle in the afternoon when I'm sinning against my kids, Remind me of how good it tasted in the morning when I read it. When I'm in the depth of depression and the darkness will not lift, remind me of how good it tasted. Father, when I, when I want to be unfaithful in this area of my life or to these people in my life, help me to remember how good it tasted. Father, let the word remind me that there is no safer place than my relationship that I have with you. And let that birth in us open-handedness and generosity for the good of others. So that we might put away these things that dishonor you and hurt the people you've died for. Father, for your glory and for our joy, it's in Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me?